Then with me as we read our sermon text on this morning, you can turn in your Bibles to John's Gospel, the fourth book in the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible with you today, you can grab one of the chairback Bibles that should be nearby you and you'll find our text this morning on page 902. We pick up where we left off last week in the middle of chapter 15, so that's verse 18 is where we begin today and we'll stretch into the first four verses of chapter 16. So let me read that portion of God's Word for us and then pray for our time and we'll continue on together. So do listen once again as the Lord speaks to you through His perfect Word. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were not of the world, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And if they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them... They would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my Father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause." But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. They will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Now we do praise you this morning, Father, for you speak to us through your Son. By your Spirit, we ask that you would make us to understand your word that we might Meditate on your wondrous works, that you would give us delight in your truth and life even according to your word in Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. It was only about 10 years or so after Jesus ascended into heaven that one of his disciples was put to death. You might know the story. It's told to us in the Acts of the Apostles where King Herod, who was the ruler over Uh, Jerusalem at that time, he was noticing that this sect of people increasingly called Christians uh, were causing no small amount of disturbance as these men who had followed Jesus, been with Jesus, and were preaching Jesus. They were uh, turning the world upside down, and so what Herod decided to do is he was going to arrest some of their leaders, he was going to arrest some of their members, and the text tells us in Acts, he intended to persecute them. And as persecution led to James' death, because in time, as the Acts of the Apostles goes on to tell us, is that King Herod decreed that one of his men needed to run through the Apostle James with a sword. 
And so James was run through with a sword. And as the years continued on and decades advanced in that first century of the Christian church, every single apostle not named John suffered a similar fate. Now, church tradition would tell us that Bartholomew was beaten and then beheaded. James, the son of Alphaeus, was clubbed to death. Andrew, Peter, Jude, Philip, and Simon the Zealous were crucified. And Thomas and Matthew, well, they were thrust through with a spear. They were killed, just as Jesus promised they would be killed. If you glance down at our passage that I just read a second ago, what you'll see again in verse 2 is, they will put you out of the synagogues in the hours coming when whoever kills you. It's a promise that Jesus gives to his disciples that only amplifies the trouble that he's already spoken to them during his table talk in what we often refer to as the upper room. You know, if you've been with us in recent weeks, we've been slowly but surely steadily going through this section of Scripture where Jesus is found in the upper room with his disciples on the night when he was betrayed, uh, speaking for many minutes by this point, perhaps even hours by this point, about things important that they need to know as he's soon going to depart. And with each passing paragraph, what we've observed, and it's only going to continue today and even well into next week, Next week's text is that their trouble in their heart is increasing. The sorrow is amplifying because they've heard about what Jesus is going to have to endure. He's told them that Judas is going to deceive him. Judas is going to betray him. Peter, that rock of the gospel, is going to deny him. Jesus has said in no small terms that he's soon going to die. Somewhat mysteriously talked about his disappearance from his disciples. And these things that he was going to endure has only increased the trouble meter within their hearts. And now he's going to exponentially, I think, multiply it further as he's going to speak directly to them about what they are going to have to endure as his followers, his disciples, and soon-to-be commissioned apostles. Because what they are going to face, what he assures them along the way tonight, is a coming difficulty. They're going to have to face hatred in the world, hardship in the world, hostility from the world. And it gives us a theme that's, of course, pertinent for us to think about this morning of of promises of the coming difficulty. Some of you know the name of a German theologian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was killed by Hitler's Nazi regime. And he he wrote a well-known book and much-beloved book called The Cost of Discipleship. And, And meditating upon this passage, he said that suffering is the badge of a Christian. I wonder if you know that to be true. A suffering is the badge of a Christian. Surely it's a badge of an apostle of Christ Jesus. Because do recognize this text that we want to turn our attention to this morning is a text that immediately and directly applies to the apostles. So this promise of coming difficulty has a unique application to them. However, I think we can say on the authority of the rest of the New Testament, even the further writings of some of these apostles, that the promised difficulty on the way applies to all Christians. Maybe you know some of the words of these very apostles who said, it's through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of heaven. The apostle Paul himself would say that anyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
So it's a text that's telling us that there's this utter incompatibility between godliness and worldliness. There's this utter incompatibility that belongs to devotion to Christ's kingdom and devotion to the kingdoms of the world. It's a text, isn't it? As old as time in the Bible, as from the Genesis uh, Genesis account forward, we find out after Adam's fall into sin, the seed of the serpent has always been warring against the seed of the woman. It helped make sense of why the Christian life is so often filled with hatred from the world. It's a text that helps make sense of how the experts tell us 300 million Christians around the world would gather in a country today where their sum total of 300 is under a government persecution. That's why even two weeks ago, 160 Christians in Nigeria martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ. Difficulty is on the way. That's what Jesus promises his apostles. And you need to understand through the same word and spirit, he promises that difficulty to you today. His promises of a coming difficulty. There's three simple things I want to show you about these promises. First of which is promise for the world's persecution, then we'll think about the Holy Spirit's provision before even this call to our own perseverance at the end. But you have to make sense of what Jesus is doing here in the upper room with what came in the first part of John chapter 15, because it might strike you most immediately if you were reading this in one sitting, that this turn to coming persecution, hatred in the world, even death from pagan rulers... Well, it seems altogether jarring when he's just said in the previous verses that the Christian life is one of this abiding love in the Savior. If you were with us last week, you might remember that we talked about how the Christian life you could summarize as this rich union and communion of love in Christ, that he is the vine, we are the branches, and we're to abide in him in such a way that we bear fruit, that our abiding gives joy and urgent prayer to our life, even our love for one another stems from his relational love for us as he no longer calls us slaves and servants, but friends because he laid down his life for us. But what he's doing here is saying that communion that you disciples have in my living is also a communion that you have with me in my suffering. So communion with Christ means communion in his life, in his death, in his living, and as we see this morning, in his suffering. Because that's the first promise, promise of the world's persecution. Look again, verse 18 of chapter 15. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Now, students, if you know grammar well, you'll see that, of course, the text begins with a conditional clause, but... It's actually quite clear in the context that this is not a word about the possibility of persecution in the world as much as it's a guarantee of hostility from the world. Because he's saying, just as it's happened to me, it's it's going to happen to you. What's that hatred that we've even observed along the way in our studies to this point in John's gospel that has been thrown against the Savior? Well, you've had religious leaders multiple times race off to grab rocks with which they meant to stone Jesus. You've, of course, had those same leaders threaten to excommunicate anyone who would believe in Jesus. You've had those same religious leaders put some of his followers on their hit list for execution because they belong to Jesus. And this kind of hatred, he will go on to say, stems from 
two primary realities, and the first of which comes, notice verse 19, it's election. We can say that the world hates Christian followers because of Christ's election. You'll see in verse 19, he says, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And think with me about the ways in which the Lord has so clearly chosen these disciples. You know the calling accounts, the commissioning accounts of the disciples throughout the Gospels. It's not as though any one of these men sitting around the table there in the upper room with Jesus applied for membership into his rabbinic school. You know, none of them filled out an application form to follow Jesus. What happened? He just walked up to him. Hey, put down that net. Come and follow me. Hey, that vocation, leave it alone. Come and follow me. I chose you, he said in the previous part of this text. You didn't choose me. And that's always a central part of the gospel message, this good news that we proclaim in the Christian life, that he chooses, not us. He elects, not us, because we can't do that. The Bible tells us we're born in sin, we're children of wrath. We belong to the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, at once at work in the sons of disobedience. There's nothing you have done, there's nothing you are doing, there's nothing you will do that can merit your deliverance. He must choose you. And the good news of Christ Jesus is that he loves to choose people to come after him. The most forgettable, ordinary, altogether deserving of wrath kind of people to come and follow him. And he's saying that the world hates you because I chose you. You know, maybe an easy way to illustrate this, kids, would be the way things so often go during recess. I'm not sure if recess exists in many school institutions anymore, but, but certainly I can have these fond memories of times in my adolescence where after the lunch hour, uh, friends and I, all the boys in the grade, you know, we'd get together and pass whatever minutes remain playing some sport in the schoolyard. Most ordinarily, we'd be playing football together, and the way in which those two teams were put together was by the ancient draft system, wasn't it? You know, you had, you had two captains, and each captain, you know, picked their team, and it whittled down the various people there ready to play. And once the game began, it so often was the case with certain individuals that all of their energy... All of their athletic warring in the coming moments were simply because they were not chosen by the other team. That they were going to work so hard against the other team is because why? They were passed over. They weren't chosen. And Jesus is saying here, in a much more sinister, sinful fashion, the world, not elected by grace, hates those that I have chosen by grace. And part of the reason for the world's persecution is not just election by Christ, it's also identification with Christ. Look at verse 20. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. My kids, you might remember that word that he just said, 
A servant is not greater than his master. He, he actually started the upper room discourse with that, didn't he, back in chapter 13. If you remember the setting there, he is there in the middle of the meal. He's gotten up. He's taken off his outer robe. He's put on a slave's towel, and he's stooped down, and he's washed his disciples' feet. And then he comes along afterwards and says what? A servant is not greater than his master. This act of humility is to be your life of humility. But in a similar way, a servant is not greater than his master, not just with the humility required in our service, but also the hostility that we face in the world. If they hate me, Jesus says, of course they're going to hate you, because he's going to say in the next verse, won't he? It really is about me more than it's about you. You'll notice what he says, verse 21, all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. It's not just election by Christ that generates the world's persecution. It's your identification with Christ that brings forth the world's hatred. I wonder if you would say you're identifying with Jesus Christ, belonging to him by faith. And all of this hatred, all of this persecution, all of this hostility, Jesus says, is not excusable. As if they didn't know better. You look at verse 22 as it continues. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. I mean, don't take this too far. It's just a simple point that what he's saying there clearly, I think, within the context of the Jewish rejection of Christ in that moment is, of course, they wouldn't have been guilty of rejecting Jesus Christ if Jesus Christ hadn't come. They had seen everything that he had done. They had heard everything that he had said, and all they had been doing all along was rejecting him. They have no excuse whatsoever for any of their hatred. Now, apply it to your experience today. Every single one of you will depart from this room in the coming moments without excuse. You will have no excuse whatsoever to reject Jesus Christ. Not just because in this service we preach Christ, we read his word, we sing of his glories, you live in a country of free worship, open Bibles, constant access to the Savior. Of course, some of you have grown up in churches where you can recite catechisms, you've had constant invitations to the Lord's Supper. You are without excuse. Don't leave today as one of those who reject the Savior and get to the end of times and think, well, if someone had actually told me, I would have believed. If I actually had seen your displays of power, I would have responded in faith. He says the world is without excuse. And he says part of their hatred too is that they've been exposed. Look at verse 24. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. Isn't it true that so much of the world's hatred towards Jesus Christ is that he, of course, speaking the Father's word and doing the Father's will means he exposes the sinfulness of an unbelieving world? I thought about this recently when a pastor told me about his own conversion story and he remarked to me how he had an older brother who was converted to Christ before he was converted. And his older brother lived in his following of Jesus in such a way with a purity of zeal and a fervency of devotion that he just exposed 
the laziness, the indifference that his younger brother had towards Jesus. And he told me, it's no problem for me to say now today that I hated my brother for exposing my sin. But it's that very exposition of sin that the Lord used to lead him to Christ, to show him his impoverished soul's nature apart from Christ, to bring him to the Savior. But isn't it true we live in a world today that doesn't want to know that there is one Lord of Lords and one King of Kings. There's one to whom you must bow. There's one before whom you must submit. There's one who can reveal your sin. And maybe you know it's one of the most uncomfortable things that can ever come to your heart to have your sin uncovered. But the good news of Jesus Christ is that to know him is to have sin that is covered by the blood of a spotless lamb so that the uncovering of it means you stand justifying him, justified in him, that you can stand clear and confident before the Lord knowing that your sin has been paid for, but when your sin has not been paid for, it's a most terrifying thing to have it uncovered, to have it exposed. It's even something that will generate hatred and persecutions toward the church. And Jesus says, it's all according to ancient prophecy. You'll see that, don't you, in verse 25, the world, I'm sorry, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. He's pulling from a couple of texts in Psalms there. Uh, But take even, not only assurance from Christ's word there, but take comfort in Christ's word, because of course their hatred is going to lead to his execution. Their persecution is going to bring forth his death, and it's that evil that the Lord turns for good. So you can trust when hostility and hatred come against you from the world. The Lord will use it for good when persecutions and problems come to you from the world. The Lord can use it and promises to use it for good. He gives you a promise of the world's persecution. Secondly, he gives you a promise of the Holy Spirit's provision. Because you'll notice what he says, verse 26, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And if you read this upper room discourse in one sitting, it really wouldn't take you that long if you wanted to do it this afternoon. What you would find is these themes of trouble, these themes of sorrow, these themes of grief growing and growing as the discourse increases. And what you would see correspondingly is this comfort increasing that Christ wants to give to his disciples. And so often that comfort is nothing more than I'm going to give to you my Holy Spirit. You know, I wonder if you're in the midst of constant affliction and perhaps even hardship and hatred from the world, if the promised provision of the Holy Spirit is enough to comfort you. Do you have such full, mature thoughts about the Holy Spirit that you know that His indwelling enables you to persevere? His indwelling enables you to stand strong amidst the hostility? Of course, what he's saying here is for these disciples who are getting ready to be killed in the coming decades, for their proclamation of Jesus Christ is that they're to have altogether the confidence, the fearlessness that belongs to the ministry because the Holy Spirit will speak through them, the spirit of truth, this spirit of Jesus Christ who is given to preach the realities of Christ so that the Spirit is speaking through them as, as they are speaking. You'll even see the speaking of the apostles, verse 27, and you also were a witness because you have been with me from the beginning. You know, the language here in verse 26 and 27, one commentator calls forensic language. 
meaning he's talking about this setting of a courtroom. And kids, you can perhaps picture it with all this language of testifying and testimony and giving witness. We've already talked about in chapter 14 how the Holy Spirit is said to be the counselor. He's said to be the advocate, something of a, a, an attorney on behalf of God's people. So that courtroom setting is quite consistent and altogether appropriate for the Spirit's ministry. But if you just think about it in this way, children, there will be times in life that will come to you will feel as though the world is locking you into the witness box, ready to condemn ready to accuse, ready, of course, for many saints around the world, to kill. And how is it, locked into that witness box before a hating world, that Christ's people can speak faithfully and, and fearlessly? But because the Spirit is within them, the Spirit is preaching, the Spirit is provided to give the words that they must say. And it worked out this way with the apostles. You don't have to Turn a few pages into the New Testament to find this occasion in Acts chapter 4 where Peter and James, they've healed this man who was lame from birth. He, he goes around walking and leaping and praising God and the religious leaders who so oppose Jesus. They essentially say, what are you doing? All this sign, miraculous work. Knock it off. Actually, we're going to throw you into prison. So they throw him into prison. And they come forth the next day and they say, well, give an account for yourselves. By, by what name did you do this? And Acts chapter 4 says, Peter then filled with the Holy Spirit. He said, leaders of Israel and you sons of Israel, know that it's by the name of Jesus Christ that this sign has been performed today. For there is only one name under heaven by which anyone may be saved. It's that provision of the Spirit that leads to the faithful witness bearing and testifying to Jesus Christ. So he's promised, of course, the world's persecution and in the light of that distressing news, he promises the provision of the Holy Spirit. And then what we see, thirdly, as it relates to the coming difficulty, we have a promise for your perseverance. You see verse 1 of chapter 16, he said, I've said all of these things. It's almost as though he's saying, brothers, guys, I've told you about all of this coming difficulty. Why? To keep you from falling away. You know, that language, children are falling away, it actually in its original form pictures being trapped, like caught in a snare. Students, theologically, we speak about it as apostasy. It's when the hardship comes, Satan's beloved strategy of pushing you away from the faith that you professed reaches its high point, isn't it true? As you get to a place of difficulty, you get to a place perhaps of even persecution in the Christian life, and then the devil comes to say, why is it even worth it? It wasn't supposed to be this way. And Jesus says, no, it was supposed to be this way. I told you it was going to happen. And of course, we need to understand, even as he tells the apostles, that the hatred from the world actually belongs so often to hatred from professing religious people. Because look at what he says in verse 2 of chapter 16. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God and they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. Perhaps the perfect example of this in the Bible itself is Saul of Tarsus. You might remember from his own autobiographical account in Galatians chapter 1, he speaks about persecuting the church of God zealously. 
He thought with all the religious fervor possible in Israel at that time that he was going to kill Christians in order to purify the church. He had sincere religious motives, thinking he was doing service to God in killing Christians. Countless Christians around the world today, of course, are killed from people professing faith and Islam, thinking they are doing religious service to their God, killing Christians as a result. And Jesus says, don't be surprised by it. It's coming. You'll see even again kind of a purpose clause in verse 4 related to perseverance. I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. That every one of my words is trustworthy. When that hardship comes, you can know hope is as real as the hardship. Because my same gospel of hope comes from the same mouth that tells you promises of a coming difficulty. In recent evenings at the Stone House, as the winter break has allowed us more time together than we tend to ever have uh, in the evening, we have taken for a variety of different reasons in these recent weeks to watching some documentaries of ultramarathoners. And uh, we were watching one earlier this week of this ultramarathoner who was running, a, I think it was a 240-mile race. And she came out of an aid station, and as these things so often go, the a stomach was upset enough that she promptly you know, emptied her stomach along the trail, and the, uh, the scene cuts to her sitting right there along the trail, and she's got a pacer, a friend, to help her with her, and she says, quote, how am I going to do this? And the pacer, this friend, responds by saying, quote, this is what you do. You go through Suffering. And I thought about it this week in light of this text. Is so often, isn't it true that the Christian life and even Satan's own accusations can find us sitting on the trail of suffering, wondering in our own hearts, how am I going to do this? And it's almost as though in his kindness, the word, and by his spirit, Christ comes near to you today saying, this is what we do. Persevere through the suffering. I told you it's coming and you have a promise of the Spirit's provision for it. So let me give you three simple medita- meditations here at the end as we think about the ways in which we might apply it more uniquely to our hearts. The first of which is this. Live with the awareness that suffering is inevitable. That's so true. It's writ large across the Scriptures that, that students, children, maybe you're trying to read through the Bible this year. You're not going to get very long into the Scriptures before you realize that No matter the age, no matter the circumstance, no matter the person, God's people will suffer along the way as they make that journey towards heaven. Some of you know your Bible well enough to know that so often, even those of you in the room that are older, it's the hardest difficulty that comes at the end of your life. You might reach a place today where you're not needing that reminder That suffering is on the way. It seems as though you've lived in the school of suffering your entire life. Well, understand that the Lord's word to you might be, it's actually only going to get harder as your life continues. You must live with the awareness that suffering is inevitable. Number two, you must treasure likeness. Likeness to Christ as invaluable. 
It's clearly what he's saying here in the sweep of this passage, particularly in chapter 15, where it talks about this communion that we have in the Savior, this abiding love that increases our likeness to Christ. Then he comes in the very next passage and says, that likeness to Christ, that forming and fashioning after my image, is precisely what the world hates so much. You know, students, you need to always know that the more and more the church looks like the world, the more the world loves the church. The more and more the church looks like Christ, the more the world hates the church. That's why Charles Spurgeon once preached so eloquently. He said, quote, put your finger on any prosperous page in the church's history. You'll find a little marginal note reading this. In this age... Men could readily see where the church began and where the world ended. Never were there good times when the church and the world were joined together in marriage. The more the church is distinct from the world in her acts and her maxims, the more true her testimony to Christ and the more potent her witness against sin. Treasure to likeness, treasure likeness to Christ as invaluable, no matter what the world brings as a result of that Christ-likeness. Treasure it as the holiness without which you can't see God. So, of course, suffering is inevitable. Likeness to Christ is invaluable. And maybe we just say at the end, thirdly and finally, know that faithfulness in difficulty is possible. Faithfulness in difficulty is possible. Because think about the way in which that provision of the Holy Spirit, that promised indwelling of the Comforter, animated these apostles so movingly and fearlessly in the coming years and decades. How is it, as I read earlier, that all of these men could so calmly face crucifixion, being clubbed to death, being run through by a spear? But because the Lord's word had prepared them for it, that the spirit was within them to empower them. How is it that the age of church history that we can always so read about is full of all of these examples, all of these stories of people being courageous unto death, People calmly going to the burning pile where they are going to be executed. People simply, with all the uncalming sanity to an unbelieving world, enter in the world's hatred and hostility with the peace and the presence of Jesus Christ. I don't know what difficulty you are in today. You might not be in difficulty, but you might soon be in difficulty. How is it that faithfulness is possible? Because the Spirit poured out into your heart guarantees that you will be faithful. If, of course, you belong to Jesus Christ. So yes, if you belong to Jesus Christ, suffering will be invaluable. But if you belong to Jesus Christ, He's given you that rich promise of the Holy Spirit to allow you to do that which you must. Persevere until the very end, lest you fall away. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray that you would give us that joy in the midst of our suffering, that you prepare us for whatever frowning providences might come our way, that we would indeed persevere, we would always remain resolute in Christ Jesus, that we would be okay with looking different from the world because of our love for your beloved Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.